morning we continue our study in the book of Genesis, and we've now arrived at the detailed account of the sixth day. Now last week we concluded the pro uh, prologue section of the history of the world, uh, of the, cre you know, the creation, it's the prologue to what comes next, and this summation of the creative acts of God in the beginning prepared us to look at the generations or the outcome, history of the heavens and the earth. We said last week uh, that we would see that God had finished creating and rested on the seventh day. In this we saw the reason that God took so long to create all things. It is well within Almighty God's power to create in a second or less the heavens and the earth. But as with all that God does, there is a reason in what He accomplishes. We also saw that uh, what, what it is Moses means by the word rest and from what. Also we saw in this rest a shadow of the rest that Jesus has brought in for the church and the ultimate rest we look forward to in heaven. And from that we learned God completed everything He created before the end of the sixth day. This points to the work of the cross. This is rest and not leisure. God blessed the seventh day. The change of Sabbath days and what they point to. There was evening and morning the seventh day. Not stating the end of the day does have eschatological implications. Now we have our uh, first toll dot or the generations of. As we explained in the introduction to the book, these serve as breaks. They alert us to the fact that there is a shift in the historical elements. So basically, we could say this tells us that this is what follows from, what is said next. We will also see the condition of the world when God created Adam, the first half of man. We will see in more detail the creation of the first man and what this points us to. But before we get to this, we have to deal with what is said about the shrubs and the grain, that it had not rained, and the ground being watered by mist. 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 <laughs> From this, we will learn the image was the point. God changes the focus. Uh, the covenant name is used. The shrubs and herbs wait man's test. Earth water, earthly water and heavenly water. Man should remember his substance that he that he never get prideful. God breathed life into the nostril of man, and this points to our redemption. If you will, stand to honor the reading of God's Word, and remain standing as we ask God the Holy Spirit to bless the preaching of His Word this morning. Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. The Word of the Lord reads, this is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, before any plant of the field was in the earth, and before any herb of the field had grown. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man, out of, man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us now go to the Lord in prayer. Dear blessed God, we praise you and we thank you, God, for all your many blessings and mercies upon us. 
We thank you, Father, for this, your word. We ask, Lord, that it would give us strength and enlightenment and that, Lord, you would cause us to obey it and that, Lord, we would proclaim it wherever we go. We pray, God, these things in your blessed Son, Jesus Christ, most holy and wonderful name. Amen. You may be seated. The image was the point in verse 4. We here encounter our first toldot. That is the Hebrew, it's the transliteration of the Hebrew word uh, that is here used. The word translated history should be generations. But history does kind of uh, give the meaning of what is being said. We said that this means here is what's follow, what followed from whatever follows this phrase. This then could be rendered thus. Here is what followed from the creation of the heavens and the earth. We will see in verse 7 that what followed was the creation of man. God created the earth and the heavens, and what followed from that was the creation of man. It was the man. And man, we have already been told, was created in God's image. So what we see from this is that the point of God creating was the man, his image. God was creating everything for his glory. And the image of God in Christ is his express glory on display. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 reads, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the, the fathers by the prophets, has in this last day spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become such so much better than the angels, as he had inherit, by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So what the writer of Hebrews is saying, the whole point of all of this is that. The whole point of everything that was made, that God made, was that the Son would inherit a much better name, sit at the right hand of the Father, creating a new creation. That was the whole point of all of this. Here then begins the story of the Creator displaying His glory through His Son in the image of Adam. So He does this through the long-suffering, right? And eventually salvation of His image through Christ. Does that make sense? He is making Adam in His image. We said that image is Christ. We said that two weeks ago, three weeks ago. And that image being Christ, the whole point of creating that image was that Christ would come as a Savior to them so that He would fully display His glory. So the whole point of the creation is Christ. The whole point of the creation is the image. Then God changes the focus in verse 4. Notice that in the first instance of the phrase heaven and earth, God sticks to his usual formula. He says this several times in the first chapter, that he's creating the heavens and the earth, or the heaven and the earth. Right? So this connects what the reader has read to, to what, you know, what has, what's coming. So he connects this, what before and, and now is connected. 
This is the complete universe and relates to the prologue. He's saying, remember, he created the heavens and the earth. Then God switches the word order and says, in the day in which he created the earth and heaven. God here centralizes our focus. And we're going to see that Genesis is a narrowing of our focus. Throughout the whole thing, God says, I'm going to do this. So what we see is a narrowing of focus. He brings our focus to the creation, to the son, Adam, that is going to be created. He says he created man in his image. Male and female, he created them. Then we get here in, chapter, in verse 7 in chapter 2, and he says this is how he created them, male and female. And he shows us how it was done. Right? And so then after the fall, we're told that the seed of the woman is going to save man. Right? He's going to be the means by which we see that done. And then God says, oh, it's this covenant line. And it's this covenant line. Oh, by the way, it's this people, this man, and his children, and only those who are, the promise goes through, and then it's the Hebrews. Oh, then it's Judah. You see, it's a narrowing. God is narrowing our focus. I'm going to save you by a son of a woman, pointing to the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Then it's going to be through this line of people. Oh, and then it's going to be this family of that line, Abraham. And then it's going to be his son Isaac and his son Israel and through Judah his son that this will come. It's all a narrowing down. God is bringing our focus always to the Savior. Always to Christ. Always. And so he now does that here. He says we're not just looking at this aerial view of the creation anymore. Let's narrow our focus and see what God did on the sixth day in the pinnacle of his creation, male and female, Adam and Eve. Her name won't be Eve until chapter 3, but she's woman until then. You know, that's, that's how I address you sometimes as woman. <laughs> so... What we have to see is that's what God is doing. Also, we see the phrase, in the day. Now, this can be confusing to some people. They want to make a big deal about this. This is, this is talking about all six days of creation. and So that day could be a long period of time and blah, 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 over and over and over again. But if we do that, then when we get to this, then it's a long period of time. Every other place we encounter it in Genesis, which is seven times, and it really just means when. When God created Instead of in the day he created, it's an idiom that the Hebrews used to mean when he did it. When he did it. Next we see the covenant name is used for the first time in verse 4. We see the first use of the name Yahweh. Now, I pronounce it Yahweh. If you want to, you can be wrong and call it Jehovah. Um, I don't mind. Uh, that is a uh, misunderstanding of the vowels, I mean of the... Uh, consonants there in the Hebrew. It was a mistake made in the Middle Ages that we cannot get rid of for some reason. Or you can be like um, Phil Kaiser and call it Yehoah. I don't care. I call it Yahweh. I think that's what it is. Um, but I'm not dogmatic about it because no one knows how it is pronounced. It's not been pronounced for some 4,000 years or so. Uh, so we don't know. 
We're, we're kind of guessing. I'm going to say Yahweh. Um, so it is the compound with the familiar name Elohim. So he's been God, 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 Elohim is the word there. It's a general word <clears throat> that, that means God. And uh, just like we use the word God, it, it doesn't necessarily mean the God of the Bible, but it, but it is God. And then we have the word before that, Yahweh. So it's Yahweh Elohim. So when you in your Bible, when you see the word Lord in all caps, that word is Yahweh. That Hebrew word there is Yahweh. And the New Testament writers followed that through by calling Jesus Lord. It's the same, same word. Same, same word, it's just in the Greek. In the, in the Greek. So, um, so what we, we see here is the first covenant name for God. This is not saying just that God who created the earth and the heavens is also called Yahweh. It is saying, th it is saying that. But we need to understand that this points to the fact that the covenant-keeping God is creator and the only true God. So the connection of the word Yahweh to Elohim takes Elohim from a specific, I mean a non-specific generalization of the word God, the concept of God creator, and says God creator is Yahweh. Yahweh is his name. Yahweh is his name. Um, this is going to be important <clears throat> as we see the creation of man. Our cre uh, covenant God invokes his covenant name as he tells us of our beginning. He was our covenant God from the beginning. Right? So you'll have some that will say, well, there was no covenant of works is what our confession uses that phrase. I don't like that phrase um, for very different reasons. If you'd like to know that <clears throat> reason, come see me afterwards. It's not. I just don't want to take the time here to talk about it. It's not that I'm ashamed of the reason um, but, but what we see here is this points to the very fact that there was a covenant made when man was created. Why? Because he used his covenant name to, to ex, uh, express himself or, or name himself as he was creating. Um, and this points to the covenant of creation, which we <clears throat> will see made later in the chapter. From this, we see the nature of God's being. Essentially... Yahweh is the God that is. I want you to think about that for a second. <clears throat> Excuse me. We are always changing. We're constantly changing. I mean, I have to wear a different pair of glasses to see the hymnal words so that I don't screw Corey up every week, which I have been doing. Please forgive me. Right? I have to wear different... Because my eyes are not as good as they were just a month ago, two months ago, six years ago. I am not the same man I was when I married my wife. And she praises God for it. But God always is. <clears throat> this is a statement of His being. This is a statement of His constancy. He is eternal. He's never changing. It talks of His immutability. And this gives us great hope because he is not a growing God. He's not a learning God. If he's a learning God, then he's going to find out what a wretch I am and he's going to cast me off. But he's not a learning God. He is a God that knows all things and he's outside of time and he never changes. 
right? And we see this expressed the best for us in our English translations in Exodus chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. The word of the Lord reads, And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Yahweh has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. I am who I am. I am will always be the same. He's not the God who will be in the future, and he's not the God who was. He is the God who is. It is a statement of being. He is constantly the same. This means that Yahweh is at every moment the same. <clears throat> Transcendent and ever being. The same being as always and forever. Gives us great hope as Christians. And this, this same I am is the, the statement that Christ made about himself over and over in the Gospels. I am he. I am he. So he's never changing. Then the shrubs and the herbs wait man's test. Now, here we have to understand what herbs are and what shrubs are. They are <clears throat> vines and bushes, right? And the herbs are grain. They are your grain plants. Um, and so <clears throat> we are told that there were no shrubs of the field. It has been argued <clears throat> that this simply means uh, those vine plants which are cultivated by man and had not sprung up yet. Right? They just hadn't sprung up yet. These are the vine plants. The point being made that the field and the earth make two distinct classifications. So in chapter 1, he says the shrubs of the earth, right, had not been created yet. And we talked about that. And then here it is, the shrubs of the field, and that is supposed to be a different classification. It's those things in which man would have to cultivate himself um, and, and take care of. Um, <clears throat> this would mean, as we said, the wild shrubs have been created out uh, in the rest of the world, but the shrubs that man would use had not been created, and they're supposedly in the garden, which God had not planted yet, and we don't know anything about. So it would be hard to kind of read that back into that, but maybe you can. My problem with this is what I pointed out in day five when we talked about it. There are these are kingly plants that produce wine. Rather, it seems that these plants are not created until after the probationary test of man, which is the covenant of creation. Will he or will he not eat of the, of the fruit that he has been forbidden to eat? Uh, and this is what we see in the herbs or grains not sprouting. They have to be toiled over by the sweat of our nose, does it, uh, and by the sweat of our nose, does its sustenance come. We have to labor over it. It's labor intensive to get grain from the plant. You have to work it, you have to, you have to harvest it, and then you have to beat it out um, to get the grain 
loose from the head. Um, they could have been easy to harvest, James Jordan says, but because of the fall, they are difficult. They are difficult. So when it says that it's not grown, the word there is sprouted. So the plant was present, but no head had been formed in the plant yet. That's what the meaning is. Notice also that these are the things that are needed for covenant meals. The wine of the, of the shrubs is kingly and is withheld until Noah as God resets creation. It's a, it's a gift to Noah at the resetting of the creation. Um, with the bread came the question, was there to be toil and sweat to reach God or would we reach Him easily? It will take the blood, sweat, and tears of Jesus to give us full and lasting communion and true covenant food. It is not until He comes that there's covenant meals between this point in history and Christ's death, burial, and resurrection and the institution of the Lord's Supper. But these are toilsome and bloody covenant meals. Every covenant meal has a meat that has been slaughtered and its blood has been spilled. Why? Because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. We are not allowed at the table of God without the shedding of blood. Praise to the glory of God that was once for all done in Jesus Christ. His shedding of His blood, His sweating on His nose, and His breaking of His body provided for us access endlessly, week by week, day by day as access to the covenant table of God. We now have full and lasting communion with Him through that. Earthly water and heavenly water, verses 5 and 6. Next we are told that the reason that this was true was, true was for two reasons. Right? There's no shrubs and there's no herbs sprouted yet for two reasons. We'll look at the first, that there was no rain. God had not sent the heavenly water on the earth. Rather, what God uses was mist, but in the Hebrew, it is better translated uh, springs rising from the earth. So we have mist rising from the earth, but that doesn't, that doesn't fit what is actually said in the Hebrew, but because it really doesn't make sense that springs are rising from the earth to water the land, they translate it mist because that seems to make more sense. This is not dew, right? We think of this light dew that's on the ground and that waters the ground. And that may be possible, but I really believe that what's happening here is we should think of uh, the image of a geyser, uh, you know, like Old Faithful, but many of them shooting forth and the water falling back to the ground to water the earth. Um, so uh, this falling of water uh, to the ground waters the ground. This is the earthly water, water under the earth, being forced out to baptize the earth. And this had to come first, again, as man's test still was ahead. And we see this being the pattern with First John's baptism. In Acts 19, 1-5 it reads, And it happened, while Apollos was at Corinth, that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus, and finding some disciples, said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? 
So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? They said, So they said, Into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So, now we need, we need to kind of work through this really quickly. We believe that your baptism is not connected to your moment of repentance. So, you very well may be baptized as an infant, and then come to faith as a child, not remembering that moment, and yet your baptism still counts for that time when faith is given to you in your in your heart, right? When your heart is changed by God, whether that be 2, 10, or 20, when God changes your heart, that baptism counts. You don't have to be rebaptized. baptized that's, that's something we don't believe you should do. One baptism, one faith. That's it, right? So here's the question we have to ask. If John's baptism is equated perfectly with the New Covenant baptism, why then did Paul have these people rebaptized after in the name of Jesus Christ. Well, there were two baptisms. And John's baptism was not the same as Jesus Christ's baptism. Well, this kind of hurts the Baptist argument in Acts. Uh, but, but it's not the same. It's not the same baptism. It did not mean the same thing. And it was not done for the same reason. Right? Even though it was the same act. Right? Same water sprinkled or poured. Or you may be immersed. Then... What comes next then was the heavenly water in the new covenant baptism. The old covenant baptism came to reset man to his place in the garden through repentance. Paul says it was a baptism unto repentance. What that meant was you were being reset. You were then being placed in the place of Adam. You were being washed of your sins because you'd repented. Now the problem is it did not keep you from sin and the guilt of sin, and so you you would fall right back into sin again because we're sinful. The heart wasn't changed. The new covenant baptism came from heaven and makes us so that we cannot fall away. Now you say, Michael, you're getting dangerous here. Does baptism do that? New covenant baptism is not simply washing, but symbolizes more than that. Titus 3, 4 through 7 reads, But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior towards man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Baptism symbolizes the pouring out of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ onto the covenant member. And that happens when we're saved. Right? We are washed in, new, in newness of life, which Paul calls regeneration. We have the Holy Spirit poured out on us. We are justified. Now, justification implies judgment. Right? You're justified. God says you're righteous. That's what justification is. You've been counted righteous. To be counted righteous, you have to be 
appraised. You have to be judged. God has to look upon you and say they are justified. Now when, they, when God does that, he does that because you are in Christ. And in Christ you are justified. Because he is righteous. And his righteousness has been accounted to you. Right? So you have been judged. But judgment comes on the earth in the baptismal waters of the flood. 1 Peter 3.18-20 reads, For Christ also suffered once for sin, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Now Peter says that your baptism saves you. Just like the ark saved Noah and his family. And you say, Michael, we're not Lutherans. We don't believe that. Well, no, but again, we need to understand the act itself doesn't save you. It is the faith represented in the act. And it is so closely connected that the symbol and the reality are connected. You can't have one reality without the symbol. It's the same very reason that we take communion every week. Because it is a meal. It is us not just eating Christ's flesh, but eating Christ's flesh with Christ. Because He has promised to be with us until the end of the age. And this is truly a spiritual meal that truly does feed our faith. It does save us. It is a means of grace. It is a sacrament. It is not just a signification or a remembrance of something happened. It is that. It is that. But it is both. Christ is truly present at the table. If He's not, it doesn't matter if we never do it. But because He is, we should do it every week. We should do it every week because He meets with us. John's baptism was merely an outward sign of a turning from past sin. But Christ's baptism, the baptism we have in Jesus Christ, is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, the renewing and regeneration, and being made new. We see these two baptisms being pictured here. First, in the, the fountain, uh, the springs of water, watering the earth, which is earthly water, and then the heavenly waters coming down in judgment on all the earth and preserving Noah. A lot of typology here. We need to understand this points us to how God is going to save us. He's going to save us in an ark, the church, that one man built and brought all of his sons and daughters into Man, if I don't make you want to shout, I don't know what should, right? That's, I mean, that's glorious. That's what we're in, the church. 
as Mark Robinette says all the time, the church is real. It is a real thing. It's not something that we have made up. It's not something we put together because we like to see each other every week. It is something that is real. It is a thing that saves us. There's no salvation outside of the church. No salvation outside of the church. Man should remember his substance that he never get prideful. Verse 7a, the Lord God formed us from the dust of the ground. This is not clay, uh, as the uh, Latin version would have, and it's not clods of dirt, but the fine dust of the ground. We are made of the earth and are earthy. John 3, 27-36 reads, John answered and said, I, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him Rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies. And no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the word of God. For God does not give the Spirit by measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. We are not made of great or valuable substances. God could have made us of gold. He could have taken silver and pressed it out and made our image and breathed life into the silver and we would have been living creatures just the same. But God took the dust of the ground, things that we're going to try to get out of our house by sweeping or off our feet by washing. It, we find it nasty. Worst thing about camping is getting dirt in your food, right? Or eating on a job, getting sawdust and nasty dirt on your sandwich. Happens all the time. And what do we do? We throw it away. It is no good. Why? Because it is dirt. Right? And I don't care that phrase. God made dirt, dirt don't hurt. I don't want it in my food. Right? And what we have to understand is when we think of ourselves, we have to remember that we are but dust. We are but dust. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, and 7 says, For it is the... For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthly vessel, vessel, earthen vessels, sorry, that is the excellence of the power may that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. So this this should stab at our pride. This should make us not think much of ourselves. It should make us remember that we have only done what we ought to have done. If we are dust, all that we have, we have received. All wisdom, all understanding, all knowledge, all strength, everything we have, we have received it. For who makes you differ from one another? 
And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did not indeed receive it, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? We do that all the time. We boast in our flesh all the time. Now, I do not want you to misunderstand me, especially you men, because this is what we do. We either are very prideful or we're self-deprecating. And I don't think either one are godly traits. If you're constantly beating yourself up for failure as a husband, failure as a father, failure at work, your wife's going to go, why in God's name don't marry this jerk? He's terrible. But if we're braggadocious and, and loud and obnoxious about the abilities that we have or what we know, she's going to say, why did I marry that jerk? He's terrible. What we have to always, always, always do, remember that we are terrible and we are but dust and we boast in Christ. So this is how it should look. I'm a good husband. I think I am. But I'm a good husband because of Christ. I praise God that He's given me what abilities to be a good husband He has given me. I have understanding that others don't. I praise God that He's given me that understanding. I can build a foundation. I can build a house. I praise God that He's given me that ability. It is not in me. It's not of me. It's not something I've worked up. I am but dust. Dust can't work up anything. Dust can't think. Dust can't know. Dust can't be wise. It has to be given to us. So we are not of something that we can <coughs> conjure up our own wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom and knowledge must be given us. We know only what is revealed to us, neither through, either through our being created by God in His image or we gain by the Scriptures. The light of man is given to all men by our Creator, Jesus Christ. We then, by grace, have the fear of God and become wise. Or we repress it in unrighteousness and count ourselves righteous and thereby or wise and thereby become fools. But this is not our lot forever. If we are in Christ, we will have heavenly bodies. 1 Corinthians 15, 46-49 reads, However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterwards the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust, and, is, and as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of man of the dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. We will know him perfectly because we will be like him. We will be made in his image, heavenly, from above. Putting off the dust, we will be like him. God breathed life into the nostrils of man, verse 7b. After forming the man, the Lord breathed into man's nose. This is a prominent theme or motif in the scripture. There's a lot of times where the word wrath or anger is translated from the word nose or nostril in the Hebrew. So, in Exodus 32, where the Lord says, Get away from me. 
Because my anger burns hot against this people, and I'll destroy them and make you a great name. Right? He literally says, my, hot, my nose burns hot against these people. And it's like that in many other places. Why is that? Why is that? Well, this is why. And the center of the image of God is the face, and the center of the face is the nose. Some of us have pretty ones and some of us don't. I'll leave you to judge that. But here's the thing that we need to understand. This is going to be a great point for us to, to understand the rest uh, of, of the text, right? A lot of what we see uh, is important. But what I want you to see most of all is what we find in chapter 3. Uh, turn to, to chapter 3 of Genesis. We're going to start in verse 17. Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 17, the word of the Lord reads, Then to Adam he said, Because you have headed, uh, heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herbs of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Now, when we get to, to the curse of Adam, on Adam, for breaking covenant with God, this becomes forefront, right? God curses Adam, and we see the reason that there was no herb or shrub. The shrub will produce thorn and thistle. The, the grain or herb will have to be extracted through intense labor. But notice that we read what in the sweat of that in the sweat of his face he will eat of them. This word is nose and is the center of the face. So literally he says, from the sweat of your nose you will eat bread. Right? The center of the face. And we, we see it is the place that God breathed life into him, and now it has become the place to signify the curse. The very thing that brought man life and made him a living soul is now an indicator that he's under curse. <clears throat> Every day you work, men, and sweat runs down your nose, you need to remember that you're under the curse. You're under the curse, absent Jesus Christ. Now, for those outside of Christ, it should bring fear and dread and hatred, right? And it does. But for those in Christ, it should bring rejoicing and gladness. Yes, I'm still sweating. Yes, I still have to eat by the sweat of my nose. But praise to the glory of God, new life has been breathed into me. The new man has taken my curse for me. And we are no longer under that curse. This points to our redemption, as I've already alluded to, verse 7. Now, taking the verse as a whole, we see that this points to us having at least two distinct parts. Um, turn back to chapter 2, verse 7 says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Um, we have the earthly flesh and the living spirit. This is not 
necessarily the soul being spoken of here, this word living being, is the same phrase that's used for the fishes, the birds, and the beasts of the field. Uh, so it, it's not some kind of special term that means soul or soulish creature. We've made that mistake a lot of times, and then we've tried to turn around and say, well, your dog don't have a soul. Well, he's got a personality, and uh, he's a little distinct from other dogs. I mean, you take Jonesy and, and Annie, and you don't know who those are maybe, but if you take Jonesy and Annie, they're two separate animals. They act completely different. Annie hardly never barks, and Jonesy sometimes won't quit barking. And they're both, you know, one's really excitable and the other's not quite as much. And one's really friendly to everybody, and the other is not friendly to anybody but me and Virginia and Emily and Matt. Um, so there's differences. So we, we, wanna, we don't want to make too much out of this, but what we do want to see that we have at least two parts to us. The, the earthly, the flesh, that which is made of dust, and then that which makes us alive. And there's two separate there. So when, when we get to Jesus Christ as our Savior, we see that the same thing is, is said there. Turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, starting verse 29. The word of the Lord reads, When she saw him, the angel, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and, being, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Highest will overshadow you, Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Stop there. So we see that without knowing a man, the virgin will conceive. <clears throat> and the wind, spirit, will overshadow her and bring the power of the Most High on her and breathing life into the child which God formed in her womb. Now, we need to understand this, okay? There was no way, there was no way the body of Jesus could be made in any other way than God took the material that was there and made a child. Or he could have snapped his fingers and the child appeared. But in any case, in either case, the child was placed in her womb by God, formed there, which he forms all children, we were told that, and... Then the spirit overpowering her makes the child alive. Makes the child alive. That is our Savior. It is this dust and deity that saved his people. He was our brother and therefore could pay for our sins, as the writer of Hebrews tells us. He was God and therefore could never be held by death, which brings us newness of life. So we see this pictured for us. 
So may we rejoice in the withholding of the covenant meat until a meal until Christ, and may we receive the blessing of wine and bread with thanksgiving, knowing that our feasts, all our feasts, are feasts because the communion meal and the and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what it reminds us of, our redemption in Christ. We are now dusty, but praise God, through Christ and His Spirit, we will be heavenly. Amen. Let us pray. Blessed God, we thank you, Father, for this truth. God, all that you bless us with to know. And God, we pray that we will rejoice in these things. That they will be uh, the ground upon which we stand to make all of our decisions. And God, that we will live unto your glory. And everything that we do, we will do unto your name with all of our might. That you may be glorified in us, your people. And we pray, God, these things in your blessed Son, Jesus Christ, holy name. Amen. So... So 